Good morning and welcome back to CCT Live, the Cape Cod Times live Facebook news broadcast. I'm news editor Patrick Cassidy. We come to you every Thursday at 9 a.m. We took a week off uh, last week uh, so I could go fishing, really. Um, but I'm here today with uh, reporter Kristen Young, uh, who covers the towns of Dennis and Yarmouth. And uh, Kristen, you've been pretty busy this week. We'll talk about a few of your stories including an apparent compromise between uh, those two towns, Dennis and Yarmouth, and the perennial debate over education funding, some threats at uh, some born schools uh, that occurred this week, and a legal ruling in favor of Yarmouth's ban on flavored tobacco with some national implications. Uh, it was a really interesting story. Uh, we'll then talk about one of the bigger stories of the week, uh, the ongoing review of a plan of a, uh, to bring a transmission cable uh, from an offshore wind farm ashore here on Cape Cod, and then take a look ahead at some more shark news coming up uh, a little later on in the week. You can take a look back at our past episodes and follow along at home by going to capegodtimes.com and checking us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those social media sites. Um, so let's start with this Dennis Yarmouth uh, regional school district discussion. Um, it sounds like selectmen in both towns are, are optimistic about a possible deal here. And, and deals don't come often in Dennis Yarmouth on this topic. What, what's happening here? That's right. So this has really been a years-long issue of the towns trying to come to terms on how they might change this regional agreement that determines how funding is assessed to each of the two towns. Um, Selectman Norman Holcomb said earlier this week, he's a Yarmouth uh, chair of the Yarmouth Select Board, said, and he's really been one of the most outspoken members of the Yarmouth Board uh, for over the past year about this agreement. And he said he's really optimistic that the two towns might have struck a compromise on some of the key aspects of the deal that have kind of been polarizing between the two towns. Um, the, this year in particular has been one where these this subcommittee that has been appointed to discuss these potential changes has had these on-again, off-again talks and repeatedly stalled their talks. The towns have had uh, allegations of unfairness from officials on both sides. Um, and Yarmouth Slugman even threatened to withdraw grades four through seven from the district. Um, but on Thursday, the two boards from Dennis and Yarmouth kind of quietly met. There weren't a lot of announcements ahead of time that they were going to do this. And they sat down and they struck what they say is a compromise about some of the key, as I mentioned, aspects of this agreement. Um, the first one being a $750,000 feasibility study that Yarmouth had paid for. It was originally intended to fund um, a, taking a look at a renovation of Mattakees Middle School in West Yarmouth, but it really resulted in the recommendation to build a new regional middle school for both towns on Station Avenue. Um, and what Yarmouth has said all along is that, you know, our taxpayers paid for this. It's benefiting both towns, and Dennis should really step up. And it looks like that's what they're going to do. Um, that's fascinating in a way, going back to something that Yarmouth had already essentially paid for um, and opening that up to negotiation shows shows how far these negotiations have come in a lot of ways. Yes. And, and to be fair, I think some dentist officials had sort of thought that they had agreed to it, but hadn't really formally committed. So, um, you know, it, it seems like now, though, things are being smoothed over and they're sort of looking ahead. It's one of those where you make a list and of things you may have already done and check it off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there are also some other things in the agreement itself that they might have come to terms on. Um, the, the agreement dictates what the assessment to each town would be for operating costs for the school district. And for two consecutive years now, Yarmouth voters have approved a Proposition 2.5 override of about $500,000 to fund their portion of the schools. Well, Dennis has approved it without the need for an override. Um, Yarmouth has said consistently that this is unfair. And that's um, been the pattern for years, yes. Yarmouth having to go to the voters for more money, Dennis having kind of their ducks in a row in terms of their finances and not having to do that. 
And again, Yarmouth uh, says that that's not fair. They're paying more mm -hmm. than their fair share. Dennis but argues. It's also important to note that Yarmouth sort of insisted on the formula that's being used now. Um, they, they insisted that that would be adopted in 2006 um, in place of a previously used formula. So it's, it's kind of, you know, how it ended up this way, may, the ball may have been uh, in their court on yeah. that one. But um, so it, some of the changes that might come, Den the Dennis Board agreed to evenly split about $2.9 million in administrative supplies mm -hmm. that uh, covers administrative salaries and supplies. And what the, the argument is there is that they're not related to enrollment, that those are costs that uh, the school would, ha Dennis would have to bear even if it had its own school on its own. Um, and so now they're looking at an even split of those costs. And Dennis said they also might be open to changing the way enrollment numbers are calculated Right now, it, enrollment numbers are calculated just by the number of students that each town sends to DY that schools. Yep. But what Yarmouth has said is that there are a lot of choice and charter students. They live in Dennis or Yarmouth. The, the district is financially responsible for them, but they go to other school districts. So they're not currently counted in those enrollment numbers. And Yarmouth has said that they really should be. And the district still has to pay for those yes. students going elsewhere. And then it's just split essentially between the two towns. Is yes. That how it works? Yep. Okay. And, and what tends to happen is that uh, a number of Dennis students actually uh, do school choice into Monomoy, so the number tends to be higher percentage-wise of students who choice out from Dennis yep. than students who choice yep. out from Yarmouth. So count, changing the way enrollment is counted would actually boost Dennis' share of the enrollment by Thank a few you. percentage yep. points, um, and that would help, you know, in Yarmouth's size sort of even out the difference in the operating assessment. So, yeah, and it looks like what they're doing is they're finding these different places where either it's something that, again, as you mentioned earlier, Dennis would have to pay for if they had their own school system, um, you know, administrative costs. That there's another uh, discussion about how they pay for the building mm -hmm. and whether they pay for common areas kind of more evenly split than, than doing it by that uh, enrollment figure. And then taking that enrollment figure and adjusting it also as it relates to these students who are choicing out. Um, so that's a that's a long way uh, from, from where these two towns have been in the past and certainly something uh, we'll continue to follow your reporting on. There's a um, a district-wide election coming up December 4th to talk about the building of the new school, right, and paying for that, yeah, which and will I, be a big deal. I think that's a lot of the reason why their towns are feeling so motivated um, to kind of come to an agreement. Um, you know, Yarmouth has said that they really don't want to back this new school to their voters if they don't feel like their voters are being treated fairly when it comes to paying for the school. But both towns have also said that this school really is the right thing to do for the students, that it's badly needed. It's going to replace Wixon and uh, Mattakees Middle School, which conditions there have resulted Very in yeah a, a lot of problems. So yeah. and, and there's money on the table for the state through yeah, the- $61.2 uh, the million. The Whenever that happens, it seems like towns become more motivated to figure yeah. out their side of things is when there's money yeah. that's being provided somewhere else which makes a lot of sense. Um, in other school news unrelated here, uh, Bourne Middle School uh, was locked down on Wednesday morning, yesterday morning. Um, this came a couple of days after a, a threat in a, that was allegedly written on a bathroom wall. There, or w there was a, a vandalism on a bathroom wall. They had deemed that not to be a threat, and we had just kind of learned about that yesterday morning right before learning and hearing uh, from some uh, parents who and who had students in middle in the middle school and born and the high school as a matter of fact that was also locked down where they were getting those texts that you never want to get as a parent which is that that I'm underneath my desk something's happening uh, I think somebody even told us that they had heard pops now as it turns out this lockdown was based on a uh, phone call that had come in 
and um, that phone call had made uh, some sort of threat that there was a, somebody in the school with a gun. Um, this day and age, any threat like that has to be taken seriously. The police responded uh, in force um, and and swept the school and found out there was nobody in the school with a gun, and they essentially uh, decided it was unfounded. I know Lieutenant uh, Isip from the Bourne Police Department said that this uh, seems to be a case of swatting, which is that uh, thing that just makes no sense, where people call the police and 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 request to report something that will produce an armed, a heavily armed uh, result um, going toward a particular address, in this case, a school. It also is reminiscent. Do you remember the uh, couple years ago when there were a series of phone calls that were going to schools really across the country, I think, um, but certainly here on the Cape was a, was a hotspot for it. Um, and, and those were calls that were somewhat similar with bomb threats that came in this weird automated yeah. voice. Um, so obviously something that, that uh, the uh, people who run the schools and the, and the police officials are worried about. Uh, again, the vandalism, they ended up disciplining a student. They didn't find a, a, an actual threat, uh, that it was an actual threat or that anybody was ever in danger. Uh, ESIP said that yesterday that it appears that this case from yesterday may have been prompted by that vandalism case. Somebody may have gotten the idea. Um, maybe they saw it uh, online somewhere and they decided to put the call in. And, and so, uh, again, one of those things that parents are always worried about. Luckily, there was nothing uh, actual in this in this case, but uh, we'll continue to keep our eye on that. These things do tend to snowball a little bit and, and have some life of their own. Um, another story you uh, wrote this week uh, was actually, I mean, even when I was hearing about the story, I was like, okay. But it sounds like it's a bigger deal than than uh, even just here locally on the Cape. Uh, this is about uh, underage tobacco use and and flavored uh, cigars. What's this about? Yes, so a Barnstable Superior Court judge ruled last week to uphold a Yarmouth Board of Health decision that they could um, penalize a Cumberland Farm store in West Yarmouth that had been selling flavored cigars, despite the fact that Yarmouth had banned flavored cigar sales in the town. Um, and and they, they're also now the town will be allowed to go forward with those penalties, which included a $200 fine and a one-week suspension of the store's tobacco sales permit. And, and sort of the way this affects um, the state and even nationally um, is, is how it allows local towns and local health boards to implement those laws and those rules against um, flavored tobacco. I spoke with Cheryl Sparrow, who's the senior staff attorney and director of policy and law for the Mass Association of Health Boards, and she said that this is a, a decision that could impact the health boards across the nation. Um, it, basically, what happened was in February 2017, a Yarmouth health agent went into the store. He found three tobacco products that were listed as flavored, and one of those uh, were black and mild jazz cigars. And what Spar said is those those cigars fall into a category of tobacco products that are known as concept flavors. I was fascinated by yeah. that term, concept flavors. The concept flavors instead of explicit flavors because they don't contain labeling or advertising that with words that denote a flavor like cherry or orange or, or something along those lines. And she said that uh, around the country, they're seeing more of those concept flavors find their way into stores and actually a lower number of explicit flavors entering the market. Um, and she said the reason is they're trying to mask the fact that trying they're actually flavored Trying to get around the rules products. against flavored products. Yeah. yeah okay. And the reason is that those flavored products have been found to be marketed to kids and studies have also shown that kids are the ones who use them. Um, she cited a study in 2014, uh, the National National Survey of 
70% of U.S. and middle school and high school students who reported that they had used tobacco in the last 30 days said that the product that they used was flavored. flavored. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really, it's an issue of making sure these products don't get into the hands of underage smokers. Um, who are and Cumberland Farms fought back. They they appealed uh, uh, or filed for an injunction, I guess, in district court. And, yes, and they did. Happened. So they filed for an injunction, as you mentioned. Um, and that actually, the court then sent it back to the Yarmouth Board of Health again for a second hearing. And during that hearing, Sabara submitted a package of the jazz cigars for a sniff test by the board. I love this idea yeah. of pulling them out in a boardroom or a hearing room where they're, the uh, board members are holding them to their noses and smelling them to figure out if they smell like a flavor. Or not, yes, right? yes. And so three of the four board members actually engaged in the sniff test. Um, one one of the board members abstained. Actually, the, the court document said that he didn't have a sense of smell. So that's huh. why he didn't engage in the test. But um, That would be me. All three, after they they smelled the cigars, um, found them to have an aroma of a flavor, and the board then unanimously voted again to go ahead and um, find that the violation took place and that they could issue these penalties. Um, and that's when Cumberland Farms then went to Superior Court and requested that the court review the findings. And also, they actually specifically asked the court to rule that the store didn't violate the regulation regulation, I'm sorry, and that they had no obligation at all to stop selling any of the products that were on the state health board's list. And I think that's where a lot of the implications come in, um, you know, on a broader region that if if they're saying, hey, you don't have any obligation to adhere to this list, then it's going to leave health officials without really much of a way to enforce And that's precedent in an instance where Yarmouth had actually led the way uh, with this uh, law in 2014. Uh, becoming the first uh, town in the state to adopt this regulation banning the sale of flavored tobaccos. But 125 other towns mm-hmm. have followed suit, including five here on the Cape and Islands. Um, and so it would have implications for all those towns trying to enforce those regulations. Cumberland Farms is no stranger to being in court uh, with local municipalities and, and local citizens, that, uh, mostly based on land cases and, and things that they want to do with their stores. Uh, it's going to happen when you're a, a big convenience store chain. Uh, but this this case certainly is interesting, and, and the implications will be interesting to see if Cumberland Farms appeals. Uh, mm-hmm. They certainly have yeah, lawyers and money, so. and, and I would be surprised if they didn't, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, big story of the week, uh, citing board, uh, the energy facility site board, which I have some familiarity with going back to uh, covering uh, the Cape Wind Energy Project. Um, They're starting today with a hearing looking at a transmission cable uh, going through an area where actually Cape Wind had wanted to put their Mm -hmm. transmission cable uh, through Lewis Bay and West Yarmouth. Um, You did some reporting on this. Marion Bragg uh, did some reporting on this as well. Um, I guess, what is this about? What's the hearing about? How big of a deal is this? So it's a pretty big deal, especially to those towns of Barnstable and Yarmouth. Um, Vineyard Wind's proposing this 800 megawatt transmission cable that will come from it's southwest of Martha's Vineyard where it's planting its turbines, and it would come through Nantucket Sound. And then there are two routes that the company's sort of looking at. Their preferred route would take it through Lewis Bay, onshore in West Yarmouth, and then on um, up kind of the higgins Kroll Road area to an existing substation in Barnstable. The other route would go directly through Nantucket Sound, and it would make landfall at Covels Beach in Centerville, um, and then go on shore from there to that same substation. Um, so the the board will be considering um, the route. They're going to be the ones who ultimately make the decision on where the cable will come on shore. And what they've said is that their job is to 
um, they say this on their website, to make sure the state has a reliable energy supply with minimum impact on the environment at the lowest possible cost. Um, and that's what they're going to be doing, attempting to do over this, this Just period. Just with some experience here, the it does seem like whatever argument you're fighting, you latch on to one of those three things in your mm-hmm. fight. You say, well, this isn't, you know, uh, a minimum impact on the environment, or this isn't the lowest possible cost. So, But they have to balance all those as mm-hmm. they're making this decision. And the idea is that they're in charge of making sure the state has, again, energy uh, coming from uh, these types of sources uh, that meet all these criteria, or at least some balance thereof. Um, you spoke to a, a few uh, guys, shell fishermen, who will be part uh, of this hearing in a way, and in another way not. Uh, what are the different types of participants that, that can take part in this hearing, and, and who are these guys? So there are two different sort of um, groups of people who have different statuses that can take part. Um, there are interveners who have sort of a larger say and a bigger ability to participate in the hearings. And those who have been granted intervener status include the town of Yarmouth, the town of Barnstable, the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound, Eversource, and a commercial fisherman out of Rhode Island, actually. Um, and they had to demonstrate to the siting board that they have a substantial potential to be impact um, and, and affected by where the case comes on shore. There's another group of people called limited participants, and they can attend the hearings. They get notified of any documents that um, are distributed. They also can submit um, written comments to the board, both when they issue their tentative decision and at the conclusion of the hearings, and they can address the board when the board meets to issue that tentative decision. But what they can't do is cross-examine witnesses or present new evidence um, or appeal the board's decision. So they can participate in some ways, but not others. And there are actually, uh, there's one person from Yarmouth Port, two from Barnstable, and six from West Yarmouth, sort of in the area um, uh, of Lewis Bay where that cable would come on shore, who've been granted that limited participant status. Um, as you mentioned, there are two of them are, are these shell fishermen who have a, a combined 3.25 million oysters in their um, grant areas that they hold in Lewis Bay. It's amazing. Again, I don't think a, a lot of people understand the amount of uh, things that uh, go on in Lewis Bay. It's it's a bay that's close to Hyannis Harbor here, right on the edge of Hyannis Harbor, almost part of it. Um, so you got the ferries coming and going. You have these guys shell fishing. You have people out there on sailboats. You have people out there doing fishing, doing all sorts of other things. Uh, I think, I mean, and I've been watching Lewis Bay for years, I don't even think I realized that it's possible to have three million oysters mm-hmm. uh, on aquaculture grants in Lewis Bay. So that's pretty amazing that these guys are doing it. And they are concerned that this could be a big impact on them. Yeah, what they're worried about primarily is um, the proximity of their aqua farms to where Vineyard Wind is planning to lay its cable. Um, and the fact that when they go to lay the cable, that sand and silt could be stirred up and actually smother the oysters that they have growing there. They say it's a very sensitive environment that even if the slightest bit of sand or silt gets into their oysters, that it could cause um, their wholesale distributors who, who buy the oysters to no longer buy their product. Um, and they, they also say they have, you know, over $100,000 invested into these farms, that it's their livelihood. One of these guys has been doing this for 17 years, and it's really kind of the only way he knows how to make his money. Yep. Um, they were denied intervener status. Um, they had applied on September 6th for uh, permission to participate in these hearings. That was actually about four months past the deadline, which was in uh, in May for people to apply as interveners. Um, but what they said is they were never notified that these hearings were going to take place and that their status as leaseholders in Lewis Bay should really qualify them as a butters, that they should have received more than just general public notice. Um, 
Vineyard Wind says that they did everything that they were legally required to do. They posted notices at town libraries and in the newspaper, and they they did mail notices to abutters. Um, but uh, that that. And they actually said they supported these shell fishermen's right to participate as limited participants, limited but they shouldn't be allowed to participate as interveners. Certainly that last part of being able to participate as interveners being the appeal would be something I'm sure uh, Vineyard Wind would like fewer people in that position to be able to appeal uh, a decision that's made by the setting board. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all already looking at, you know, again, the town of Yarmouth, the town of Barnstable and others who may be able to do that. Um, so again, a lot of players in this, as always, this is just the cable project that they're talking about. There's obviously a little less consternation about the wind farm itself as it's going to be uh, again, South uh, West of Martha's Vineyard and further offshore than Cape wind was. Uh, but even then fishermen have weighed in about concerns about the layout of the turbines. So a lot of different uh, aspects to it. Some of it uh, familiar from the Cape wind debate, which was again, going through Lewis Bay. And then the, the town of Barnstable tonight is taking up a lease agreement for an area uh, near Covell Beach. Um, and it seems like, you know, that's moving along parallel to this. You have that as the, as far as we know, the alternative uh, uh, landing site for these cables. Uh, Lewis Bay is, uh, is at the latest as the uh, primary landing site that they want to go through, but they're taking care of both those avenues mm-hmm. to make sure that they're uh, in shape to uh, to move forward one way or the other. And they want to be up and operating by 2021, I think, is mm-hmm. what they were saying, which that's going to be a, a quick turnaround no matter what. Um, uh, but again, a lot of the further offshore stuff, the kind of ocean planning that took place after Cape Wind was announced may have made it a little more efficient. Um, well, thank you, Kristen. Uh, looking ahead real quick, we're going to have uh, a story coming up um, uh, where we uh, talk to the former head of the International Shark attack file that's based out of Florida. Uh, he was on the Cape this week to learn more about a uh, fatal shark uh, attack last month in Wellfleet. Um, so we'll have that story coming to you in the next couple of days. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, tell your friends, share the link, and uh, feel free to reach out with any story tips or ideas. Uh, Kristen's emails and everybody else's emails here are available at capecodtimes.com where, where news on Cape Cod starts. Till next week, have a good morning and good luck.